Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Not everyone is a fan of college football, and even all the fans of college football are not necessarily fans of the SEC, and therefore, not everyone knows that that song is related to the University of Georgia Bulldogs, uh, who last night defeated the Alabama Crimson Tide in the National College Football Championship game, 33-18. to And you're saying to yourself, you know, I don't care about sports, and I don't care about college football. Well, you know, I'm your friend, and I do. So there you go. Uh, for those of you who stayed up late last night watching the Georgia-Alabama game, you were not disappointed uh, in what was delivered as a great championship game. It's a great rivalry. And, yes, it's a good morning for us to remember Romans chapter 12, verses 15 to 18. As we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. The rest of those verses say, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. So maybe that's to my uh, to my Bulldog fans this morning. Do not be haughty. But then it says associate with the lowly. And I don't necessarily think we should think of our, you know, like uh, athletic opponents as lowly. But there you go. Never be wise in your own sight. That's uh, Paul's nod there to haughtiness. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with everyone. So there you go. Uh, That's Romans 12, verses 15 to 18. Uh, Patrice checking in this morning on the text line. You're welcome to do so as well. Patrice uh, says, go dogs. Proud graduate of UGA. Best game ever. Thanks for the music this morning. Well, good morning, Patrice. Great to hear from you this morning. You guys can always text me, 877-933-2484. Love to know where in the word you are today. Uh, I have a set of New Year's placemats that have uh, different Bible verses on them. And this morning's placemat uh, was Psalm 143.8. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Indeed, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's be sure we give it to him Give it all to him. He can handle it, even those things that we uh, cannot. uh, He certainly can. For those of you who are operating on an academic calendar, the spring semester of 21-22 is here. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are lifelong learners. So I'm hoping you are actively engaged in a discipleship plan. You are actively being discipled and actively discipling someone else. So what's on your syllabus for this semester? What books of the Bible are you going to read, study, discuss, examine, and sit under someone's teaching uh, in terms of? What questions do you expect to be asked to answer? What questions are you going to ask others 
what examinations do you expect to face? Like if this is the spring semester of our year of discipleship, 2022, you know, how are we sitting under the teacher? How are we sitting at the feet of Jesus? What do we expect to uh, ask him and what do we expect to be asked of him? University professor Mark Caleb Smith has been working on an assignment that I gave him on a syllabus for us, and I know you're going to want to hear that. Let's hear what he's come up with. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen. Oh, yeah. He also went to the University of Georgia. All right, joining us now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. He serves at Cedarville University, but I understand he has two degrees from the University of Georgia, so go dogs. Good morning, sir. Go dogs. Go dogs, sick them. That's right. There you go. There you go. I um I went to the University of Florida, so certainly there is a part of me that does not like to see Georgia win, but I am a person that if the University of Florida is not playing, I'm rooting for any SEC team that is playing, and if any SEC team is playing Alabama, then I am absolutely rooting for the team playing Alabama. So there you go. <laughs> so Georgia hey, I, I had my it. full affection last night. Uh, it's, as a as a long suffering bulldog fan, it was uh, it was it was a sight to see. And you know, Al, as you know, Alabama has put us through the ringer over the last decade. We've had several opportunities, and uh, they're a great team, great program. And it was incredible to get a win over them. So. Yeah, it was a long night, so I hope I'm as sharp as I normally am, Car- uh, normally am Carmen. It's but okay. it was a long night, so not as it's much okay. sleep as normal. We're just gonna we're just gonna do this together. We'll load it up with caffeine and joy. Okay, so uh, Professor, what's on the syllabus for the new year? What should we as Christians be reading or studying in the new year? If you were to write a syllabus for us, what would it include? Uh, potentially lots of things, but uh, there are a couple of books that I have in mind specifically. Uh, and I don't think one of them at least is not very well known. Uh, a gentleman named Robert Benet, who's a longtime uh, professor uh, of religion and politics, wrote a book in 2001 called Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics. And it's a very short book, a uh, very simple book. It's not written really as an academic text. It's written really more for uh, for people just to read and consume and hopefully understand what he's getting at. Uh, but what he's what he's trying to argue in this in this little short book is that religious people have to make some decisions about how they want to have a political impact, and they they can either have a direct impact on the political world or they can have an indirect impact. And he talks about the benefits of going both of those either of those directions. Um, you know, the direct impact you have an institution, you create an interest group. Maybe you look for a fusion of church and state. You know, you want to have a huge effect on policy and government through religion um, or an indirect impact where you shape the culture, uh, where you shape people, where you shape their preferences and how they view the political world. And you don't really have a lot to do with politics directly, uh, but you have to do with people who then affect the political world uh, on behalf of their faith. Um, now, clear. I think when you read the book, it's pretty clear where the author comes down in this argument. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting read. And for me, at least, uh, it, it really addresses one of the key issues that we're struggling with as Christians today. You know, how do we take our responsibilities as a believer? How do we take our faith 
And how do we carry that into the political world in a way that can honor God, but that can also uh, hopefully be effective uh, and hopefully shape the world in a way that would bring glory to God? So um, Robert Benet is, uh, he is a great guy. I have had occasion to spend a little time with him um, in terms of seeking to bring evangelical and biblical renewal to mainline denominations. He is a faithful United Methodist, and so he is one of those guys in the process of, um, you know, what is it going to look like to be a Bible-believing Methodist person beyond the, uh, you know, beyond the United Methodist Church, which is currently in a process of what I will just call uh, yeah deconstruction <laughs> that right, would be my that's right. so he's he's lovely wow I and I have not read the book so um, thank you so much for adding that to the syllabus anything else professor that you'd like to put on the syllabus this semester you know I'm a I'm a really big fan of uh, using novels or films to teach political themes and to teach ideas because uh, I, I sometimes think that they can get to things in a way, uh, that maybe a traditional academic text cannot, or they do it in a way that's maybe more effective for some people. Uh, but one of my very favorite political novels is called All the King's Men uh, by Robert Penn Warren, uh, written in 1946. Uh, Warren was known primarily as a poet, one of the great American poets, uh, but wrote this piece of, of fiction about the rise and fall of Willie Stark, who's a very charismatic governor from the South, uh, who happens to be a demagogue. I mean, Stark is uh, is charming. He is beloved by the people, but he uses the people to achieve his goals. And ultimately, he uses the people to do some horrendous things. Um, but the book is told from the perspective of a guy named Jack Burden, who works for Willie, uh, who's a very intelligent and, and thoughtful and reflective person, who sort of gets sucked into the black hole of Willie Stark. And the book is really about the impact of politics on the soul of Jack Burden. You know, what does mm. this transformation look like as he operates in the orbit of a very, of a very strong personality who tempts him to do things that otherwise he would never do uh, on behalf of this person that in some ways he admires and other ways he's terrified of. Uh, but it is, it is a very powerful book. Um, it's a pretty thin retelling, I think, of Huey Long and the rise of Huey Long in Louisiana uh, early in the 20th century. Uh, but I think it has an awful lot of wisdom about uh, the temptations of politics. And I think I think one of, if not the best politically oriented novel uh, that's ever been written in American uh, literature. With some obvious uh, contemporary applications. So, um, yeah, I think that's really, uh, really insightful. All right, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I'd love for you to help us um, sort of see the current landscape of who is running and who is not running. There are just a huge number of members of Congress not running for re-election this year. I'd love for you to bring us up to speed on that. We are talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, and we'll be right back. My darling, please wait for me till All right, so last night, uh, watching the news, Representative Ed Perlmutter, a Democrat from Colorado, said that he's retiring from Congress after his current term, joining more than two dozen other House Democrats who have announced that they will not seek re-election ahead of this year's midterm elections. Um, Mark, what's going on? 
Well, it's not unusual to have a fair number of members of Congress just simply choose not to run. You know, it is 435 people in the House, 100 members of the Senate. And so it's not unusual to have a you know handful here and there to say, you know what, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Uh, maybe they just are uh, getting a little bit older, would rather do something else. Maybe they'd rather go into something that's not political. Um, but I will say, I think the numbers, this cycle, these are very large numbers. Um uh, in the House in particular. And as you noted, most of them are Democrats. Um, and I think you can read two things into that. Uh, one is uh, the Democrats are predicting, in a sense, that they're going to lose control of the House. Uh, what we often see is the party that feels like the winds are shifting against them a little bit. And it's a current majority party. Often members who are kind of on the edge you say, you know what, I don't know if I want to do this as a minority member again. Um, I've enjoyed my position. I've been able to affect things in terms of policy. Uh, but as a minority member of the House, you know, it's really not a lot of things you can get done uh, when you get right down to it. But the other thing that I think this reflects, and I think this is the bigger problem in many ways, is I think many members of Congress are just tired of being in Congress. Um, uh, we, we hear this again and again from people who are stepping away, that uh, serving in Congress is not what they thought it was going to be. And even for those who've been in D.C. for a long time, uh, it's just no longer holds the allure that it once did. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. But there's a lot of division, a lot of partisanship, uh, hard to work with other people, hard to build relationships, um, and not as much collegiality you know, as they once had, I think, which for a lot of them uh, kind of gave the job some meaning. So, yeah, I think a significant moment, um, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if we see more and more people. And, it, you know, you mentioned the House. There are six senators also not running for re-election, so a fairly large number there, too. Um, remind us, because, you know, we haven't been in a civics class in a while, um, every member of Congress runs for re-election every two years? That seems kind of crazy. So every, yeah, every House member runs for re-election every two years. Um, and then every every two years, a third of the senators run for re-election. So the Senate's on a cycle uh, where they turn over all those seats every six years, everyone will run for re-election, uh, but a third of them come up every two years. And so uh, it was designed that way so that the people could have a significant effect uh, on the House, but a somewhat limited effect on turning over the Senate quickly. So, yeah, every two years it's a significant election. And uh, 2022 is, is here, and we have an election coming up in November uh, that will determine the control of Congress. You know, and right now, if you had to cast a bet. Uh, looks like the Republicans are in much better shape than the Democrats. All right. In terms of um, what I would consider political headlines across the country, I don't really know if this is a political headline, but it was one that caught my attention. And I thought I'm going to ask um, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith about this and see what's going on uh, and maybe how you can help us understand it. This is a story out of New Hampshire, and it's a story about bringing an end to child marriage. I'll just have to confess to you, child marriage in the United States of America has not really been on my radar. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. It's not certainly a political issue that I spend a lot of time uh, looking into. And I think for most of us, when we think of child marriage, we think of maybe 50 years ago or 100 years ago, where people who were uh, quite young uh, got married somewhat regularly. Uh, but there are states in the United States uh, that have no minimum age for marriage, which is shocking. I find that shocking. Yeah, it's shocking. I... So 
California. California has no minimum age for marriage. Um, wow. It's not 13. It's not 16. Uh, but they have no minimum age there. As long as you have parental consent, um, people can get married in California at very, very young ages. Uh, Which, just the, to be clear, isn't California one of the states where you do not have to have parental consent to end the life of an unborn child? Uh, I, I, that is correct. And, yeah. And that's so, where you get mm-hmm. into the, some really shocking conflicts here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, and looking into this a little bit more, there are 88,000 uh, married individual Americans between the ages of 15 and 17. And again, a much larger number than I'd have expected. Um, wow more than most of us would have guessed. I think the problem here in, in some of these situations is that these young people getting married are really being set up to get into sex trafficking, whether they know it or not. Um, you, know, you get attached to someone, they may be older, parents give consent, and all of a sudden you're married, and that person now <clears throat> is in a position to maybe move you away from your family uh, to exercise some kind of authority in the situation. Well, yeah, and in uh, some cases you can't drive yet. No, that's exactly right. And how vulnerable uh, is someone who's getting married at a, at a very young age? It's a, it is a remarkable thing. Uh, but there is a movement to sort of update these laws and to move them to at least a 17 or 18-year-old minimum age without any kind of exceptions. Uh, but what's shocking to me, and I use that word again, is there is strong opposition to this. Which, again, I don't quite understand, uh, but there's strong opposition to, to raising these levels uh, throughout the country. And it seems like, you know, just reading into it a bit, that a lot of the opposition comes from people who say, well, what if it's a teenage couple and the girl gets pregnant and she's 17 years old? Uh, isn't it better for them to want to get married at that point and for us to bless that arrangement um, as opposed to uh, wait, forcing them to wait until they're 18 or 19 or whatever it may be? I kind of get where that's coming from, but uh, I can see so much uh, recipe for abuse of that. Yeah, I think the whataboutism that that defends this is um, is is a conversation that we have to have. And we have to have it in a really sober way, um, and we have to talk about protections under the law, um, and then we have to talk about exceptions, right? So I, I think that we talk about exceptions after we have established. What what in the world as a morally credible people before God um, should this look like in the United States of America today? And I recognize that, uh, you know, in Bible times, this is a different conversation. But we don't live in Bible times and we don't live in the Middle East. Um, and so I think that there are conversations to be had here that have religious implications and there are conversations to be had here Um, that have implications on this day, which is Human Trafficking Awareness Day in the middle of Human Trafficking Awareness Month. And this is an issue of human trafficking in the United States of America. Um, There are a number of states across the country where there is no minimum age for marriage. Um, And in in April 2021, um, Unchained at Last, which is an organization that's funded by the Gates Foundation, estimated that 297,000 minors were married in the United States between the year 2000 and 2018. 60,000 of them under their state's legal age of sexual consent. So if you are under the age of sexual consent um, and your parents are marrying you off, it's illegal. It's illegal. Um, And we need to find a way to protect these children. If, in fact, their parents are making decisions that are actually 
not to their benefit. Like there's just all kinds of layers um, to this conversation. And and um, yeah, Mark, so thank you for helping us at least enter in, wade into this very difficult material. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, we talk with him regularly. Thank you so much for joining us today. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can also find him on Twitter. We'll be right back. Have you ever thought to yourself, you know what, I really want to change the world. I want to change the world. I want the world to be different. Well, you can do that in the life of one child. You can change the world for one child. We're going to talk with Scott Todd, president of One Child and the author of Hope Rising. He's going to tell us how we can change the world by changing the world for one child. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. If you have kids at home, I want to remind you of something important. This parenting thing, it's not about you. Hi, I'm Mark Grayston with Parenting Today's Teens. Moms, dads, grandparents, this isn't about us. It's about our kids. Our parenting should not be a display of effort so our self-esteem is boosted when everyone sees what a good kid we've raised. When a child fails, it's not a reflection on your worth. It's an opportunity to instruct. We're not trying to win Parent of the Year. Our focus should be on teaching our kids to develop discernment, moral values, and compassion for the people around them. We should keep our eyes off ourselves and on the precious lives entrusted to us by God. Remember, it's not about you. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining us today is Scott Todd. Uh, He works with One Child. You've already heard some about the One Child ministry. We're certainly going to continue to invite you to go to MyFaithRadio.com and support One Child. You'll see um, a way to do that right there, partnering with One Child to help kids around the world. Scott, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Great to be with you today. So let's just start with this. Let's assume that people know that there are children in the world and they know that poverty is a reality. Talk a little bit about children in poverty around the world. Uh, Yeah, just as you said, it's not something people aren't aware of. Uh, Obviously, the challenge of global poverty has been with us for a long, long time. And, uh, uh, you know, the good news, and many people don't realize, we've made incredible progress against extreme poverty and lots of kids have been lifted out of poverty, but we're not there yet. And, uh, Uh, So when we're working with children in extreme poverty, we're talking about kids um, who are living on less than $1.90 per day, basic needs not met. They don't have access to things like safe drinking water or secure food, uh, educational opportunities, many times living in in slum communities where there's gangs and violence and drugs and lots of threats to their well-being. And so uh, it is hard work. Um, No question the, the trauma and challenges kids face around the world uh, break our hearts. And um, I think it's really important just because of what you said that people are so familiar, it's really important that we not become numb to that. It's really important that we have a sense of hope and possibility because not only have we seen um, so much progress and so many good things, uh, but when you hear from the individual kids who climb out of those circumstances and go on to lead productive lives, uh, having overcome those realities, um, it's inspiring. And honestly, uh, as, as far as one child is concerned, 
we're a community that celebrates, we're a community that believes in hope. And so even when we see these really hard circumstances, we say, yeah, but with God, all things are possible. And we've seen God at work, even in these hard places. So when we talk about um, some of the hard places that one child is uh, is serving children uh, and partnering with adults here in the United States and around the world to serve as champions of those children, um, maybe introduce us to some of those places. I know that, you know, you, it's a global network, but um, where are some of the places that one child has child sponsorships available today? Uh, we have program partnerships around the world. Uh, we have... Um, Many in Africa, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, uh, multiple Asian countries, and even some programs in the Middle East. Uh, one of the unique things about One Child is that we go into some of the hardest communities, some of the furthest places, smaller places, places that other organizations uh, don't go or can't effectively reach. And when I think about uh, the examples, you know, there's so many different contexts, situations. What's going on in Uganda is very different from. You know, Lebanon is very different from the Philippines. Uh, but in the Philippines, for example, when we started uh, working there, uh, we sat down with church leaders across the country. We asked them, um, what are the other organizations that are here? Where are they working? And where are we most needed? And we were pointed to the southernmost island of the Philippines called Mindanao, which has been a dangerous place, especially in the past. It was a hotbed for uh, Islamic extremists and, and terrorists, that had calmed down, but it was still that kind of place, and nobody else wanted to be there. These were tribal communities, very hard to access. And when we sent our, uh, our initial facilitator, the guy who's kind of the point on finding those right partners, uh, he met a tribal chief who said, you know, if you'd come up here a few years ago, I would have killed you. And that is how it started. <laughs> So we built trust, we built relationship. And, and once they came to understand who we were and how we partnered and how we strengthened local churches to be salt and light beacons of God's love in those communities, um, they welcomed us in and we began doing training and eventually got to that place where they could go register the kids that were at greatest risk. These are kids that didn't have birth certificates, didn't have access to public uh, education or healthcare or you know basic services. So being able to partner with one child got them on the road of, um, of, of, of growing as a citizen in that country and, of course, growing in the knowledge of God um, because we're partnering with that local church to strengthen that church to be really who God designed that church to be. Uh, so hard places could be tribal communities where there's violence, but equally I could tell you a story about being in a gang-infested barrio where um, only because I'm walking with that uh, Hope Center director who is so well-esteemed in the community – that's the reason I'm safe, because otherwise the gangs would definitely not let me pass. We are talking with Scott Todd. We're talking about One Child. Faith Radio is partnering with One Child. Uh, we are inviting you to become a champion for a child today. You can do that by visiting us at MyFaithRadio.com and supporting One Child. Um, what's going to happen, um, Todd, when somebody does that, when somebody... Uh, you know, says, I want to become a child champion. Um, in fact, I probably need to take a very, very brief pause and ask you to tell us what happens um, after uh, in just a moment. So if you're listening right now, we're going to continue our conversation with Scott Todd from One Child in just a moment. And I'm going to ask him, like, what happens when somebody says, all right, I, I'll, I can do it. I can, I can be generous in this way toward a child and become their champion. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. 
All right, picking up where we left off with Scott Todd from One Child. Um, Scott, what happens when a person says, okay, I can do this. I I have the capacity. I have the compassion. Um, I will become a champion of One Child. What what happens then? Well, the, you never know what happens. That's the crazy thing is that you're beginning a relationship. And it's a relationship with a child whose um, circumstances are very different from your own, culture very different. Uh, lots of things very different. And that child, that little boy, that little girl is on their own unique journey through life. So what's going to happen could be uh, could be just about anything. Uh, You know, when my wife and I started sponsoring kids many, many years ago, we really had no idea the journey that we began. Uh, That was back in 1989. And I was just a college student and Uh, We were actually engaged at the time, not yet married, and uh, decided to sponsor this little boy named Juan. And I did not know on that day that about 20 years later, I would actually get to meet Juan as an adult. I would Mm -hmm. get to uh, sit down with him and ask him what his experience was like. And when that meeting happened, he showed up holding in his hands the letters I had written him across those 20 years. And he, uh, he told me, Um, how important it was to him that we were praying for him and all of these things. And so it was life-changing for Juan. It was life-changing for me. Um, We've sponsored many kids and there've been many different journeys. So what happens? Uh, God knows. Um, what What I do know is this, every child's unique. Every opportunity to invest in a child is joining with God's work in that child's life, helping them to be protected, helping them to have opportunity, helping them to believe a better future is possible and discovering really who did God create this young person to be. So you get a chance to come come alongside of local child champions, those teachers and tutors who are working with a kid. You get a chance to, to know the child as they grow, to pray for them, to offer meaningful messages of encouragement. And sometimes you find out that uh, that, that relationship is incredibly deep. Um, for example, another uh, experience that I had was with a little girl. Um, we were connecting our kids with uh, children um, through sponsorships. So my wife and I have four sons and each one was connected to a sponsored child so they could be pen pals and write letters and pray for each other. And I remember as a dad feeling really good seeing my my son praying uh, for that little girl and knowing that that little girl was praying for him. And they would say so in their letters to one another. Uh, and this little girl, she often drew pictures. And when she sent us this letter one time that had a picture um Often it was a picture that represented my family. So there'd be me and my wife and then each of the four boys. But this particular picture was of flowers. And there were two tall flowers. And then there were five smaller flowers surrounding uh, the tall flowers. And she'd named each of them. So the two tall ones were me and my wife. And then the names of my four boys. But there was this fifth flower in the garden in her picture. And it had her name on it. Mm. And I think that was... I mean, so moving for me because she had drawn herself into the picture of my family. You never know what's going to happen when you sponsor a child. I love that. Scott, I'm wondering, um, as you reflect back, I'm 
I'm thinking here about the book that you wrote in 2014, Hope Rising, um, in which you, you know, you cast this vision that Christians can eradicate extreme global poverty um, through transformative Christian generosity in our lifetime, like within a generation. I'm wondering, as you look back, um, do you still believe that to be true? And have we made um, positive progress that you could point to? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we, <laughs> it's, it's crazy how much progress that we're making and how few people know. I, mm. it's, it's amazing to me. These aren't just a few, you know, sometimes statistics or you know, the numbers are a little funny or all of that. No, these are sources of data that are by far regarded as the world's most reliable sources of data. And they are overwhelmingly clear. In 1981, 52% of the world's population lived in extreme economic poverty. And by that, that's a World Bank definition of, uh, of a level of income. Now, the level changes over time because of inflation and adjustments and things like that. But it's a level of income that says below this, even if you spend all of this income on food, you still don't have enough to meet the basic caloric intake requirements of an adult male. It's mm -hmm. life without your basic needs met. Defined by the World Bank, it's been measured uh, for decades. So in 1981, half the planet is living in that place, extreme poverty. So it's things like dirt floors, no electricity in the house, a lack of stable food supply, kids dying from preventable diseases, that type of reality. Well, if you look through the 1980s into the 1990s and then around the year 2004, we had cut in half the percentage of people living in extreme poverty. So from 52% down to 26% and nobody's talking about it. Mm. Well, then we look from 2004 on into about the time that Hope Rising was published and that progress continued just a solid, steady pace of improvement, of economic growth, of people being able to climb out of that uh, really horrible reality. And so around the year 2015, we actually dropped below 10%. Now you look at the last five years or so, progress has been steady until, uh, until last year, until well, about a year and a half ago, because what COVID did wasn't just as a public health issue. It was how governments responded with lockdowns. It was how uh, everything got thrown sideways in the effort to control the virus. And the economic consequences of that are severe for the extreme poor. They don't have a government stimulus check in the mail. They don't have uh, the ability to work remote. They don't have all of these options. They don't have you know, grocery stores to go panic shopping in. They've got no pantry. So when you lose daily income, you lose daily bread and your family goes hungry that day. There's no buffer, no insurance, no government stimulus check. And so we've actually, for the first time in decades, seen a reversal on that progress against extreme poverty just in these last few years. And so what we need to be working for is bring back stability, bring back economic growth, bring back those opportunities and norms that allow people on the margins, people that are the most vulnerable. These are single moms trying to raise a child in very hard circumstances, bring back uh, those opportunities so that we can keep uh, making progress against extreme poverty and keep uh, seeing fewer and fewer children um, perish from preventable causes. If you want to become a champion of, of that effort, right? If you want to do your part in coming alongside one child 
and through that one child, one family, you know, to to not only supply daily bread, but the opportunity for an education, um, uh, some sense of stability and uh, an opportunity to have positive relationships with with other people, right? Not only in their own community, but around the world. We'd invite you to become a child champion today to support one child. You can do so at MyFaithRadio.com. Support One Child is over there on the right-hand side um, of the page. Scott, when we when we think about kids and we think about hope and we think about the future, I'm wondering, you know, how you see the future of your own four boys in light of the reality that we do live in a global economy. We do live in a planet that is increasingly small just in terms of how much we understand about one another and the impact that we have on one another. Do you think that looking looking ahead like it's going to be fundamentally different because they are going to have known about kids around the world as they have grown up? Uh, absolutely. I think that um, my sons, because they were connected, writing letters, praying for uh, a child overseas, building some relationship, and two of them had the chance to travel with me and visit uh, the kids that they were uh, connected to, that had definitely changed who they grow up grew up to be. Um, you know, they're in their, three of them are now in their twenties. Uh, one of them's 15 at this point. And, um, there's no question that I believe God worked through those relationships, um, to shape their worldview, to help them see the world, um, differently. And, you know, honestly, as a dad, uh, it felt good that the pressures that our kids face in our society, um, around what they own and what they wear and what they talk about and all of that, I mean, um, giving them this anchor of perspective, this relationship where they can see that a little differently and say, uh, actually, maybe I don't need all that, or maybe this isn't the best thing. Um, it was a good thing for us as a dad trying to raise kids in a very entertainment-centered consumerist society. Um, and we, we wanted our values, um, not just our beliefs, but how we live out those beliefs. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus today? What does the great uh, parable you know, about the Samaritan mean for us today? Who is that? who is that person that's vulnerable and left for dead on the side of the road? And why did Jesus choose a story um, about a person that was from a different cultural background? And I think that that whole idea that we live out our faith by demonstrating love in this world, we love God and love others. We have the opportunity in our global world to build relationships with very vulnerable people, especially kids, and to help them to know that God is a good and loving father and to be an instrument in that, to be uh, part of, of helping somebody else experience that. And then what we find out is not only ourselves, but for our kids, we're shaped by that too. And that that relationship is, is a two-way thing. We, we grow um, and we begin to understand God's grace more fully as we participate in it. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, every child needs a champion. You can become one today. Participate with us here at Faith Radio as we join One Child, which is a global community of child champions serving children in poverty so that they can discover hope and reach their God-given potential. If you want to become a part of it, we'd invite you to do so. Visit us at MyFaithRadio.com and support One Child today. Scott, um, thank you so much for coming alongside us, telling the story, and for reminding us, indeed, that hope is rising. Thank you, Carmen. It's a joy to be with you today, and thanks for the partnership. We are excited for what God is going to do through this effort. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Today 
All right, who do you follow on Instagram or who do you follow on Twitter? What social media um, outlets are you even on? Um, I am curious to know that. Uh, I am curious as I look further into 2022, where on social media you would prefer to engage together. Is it Facebook? Is it YouTube? Do you want a third hour, maybe face-to-face on Facebook Live or on YouTube? I don't know. I need to hear from you. Like, what what would you like um, more of in terms of engagement with me in 2022? You can always text me, 877-933-2484. You can email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Or, you know, find me on one of those social outlets and say, hey, this is the place I'd like to engage. I'm actually on all of them. Well, I say that. There's probably some I'm not on. But I'm on uh, Facebook. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, there you go. Email Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Tell me what my social media plan should be for this new year um, so that we can connect more fully together. Would love that. I imagine uh, that if you're listening right now, chances are you know Jesus because we think of this as Christian radio, which means we think of this as radio that Christians listen to. But it's also totally possible that you don't. And it's 100 percent the reality that there are people who you know who don't know Jesus. So I want to make it as easy as possible for you to get to know Jesus Um, And if you already know Jesus, for you to connect others with him. So here's what's going on. You can text the word FAITH to 41224. Text the word FAITH to 41224. It's the first step on an incredible journey that will lead you to Jesus, who, by the way, wants more than anything in all the world to meet you and to share with you the love of the Father. That's why he came, to make the Father known. So maybe you don't know this today, but let me tell you, you are precious. You're unique. You're worthy. You're loved. God sees you right now. He knows what you're feeling. And he loves you more deeply and thoroughly than you have ever allowed yourself to imagine. God is good and he loves you. He loves you. Wade into that reality today. We got another hour together. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.